you do have to treat your personal and professional lives and your spouses and your people at work, like not in an entitled way, but in a way where you're trying to balance everybody's needs and understand that at some point someone's going to get sacrificed. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Radically Loved Radio. I wanted to create a place where people can go to to get inspired, get motivated, or find some clarity and get tools to create a radically loved life. I will do my best to provide information on a variety of subjects, including yoga, holistic health, life coaching, spirituality, meditation, and overall mindful living. Each episode will bring you some of the world's best spiritual leaders, entrepreneurs, yoga teachers, coaches, along with some of my closest friends, and we will talk about their life experiences and journeys to create something more out of their lives and how they continue to grow to make that happen. Thanks for listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Radically Loved. I am joined by a very, very special guest, somebody that I have been wanting to talk to for a very long time, and we have the privilege of having her on the show, Sukinder Singh Cassidy. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Rosie, for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Well, there's we prior to us starting, we we're already having this major conversation (laughs) and before we go into the other areas that now I would really love to explore with you um, you're here to talk about your new book choose possibility and I would love for you to just tell the audience a little bit about what the book's about Sure, sure. Well, as I said, thank you for having me. The book is actually really simple. Sometimes, you know, when you write a book, you're like, isn't this maybe too simple? Is it too simple a concept? But um, my publisher tells me it's not. And the book was bought with one simple thesis that we all need to have. We all have the opportunity to learn and grow. And we know that people tell us that. But in order to learn and grow, we're told to take risks. But risks and risk-taking has a lot of myths that surround them that I found to simply be untrue. So I wrote the book, Choose Possibility, really to debunk the myths that surround risk-taking and replace them with like real-life constructs for how anyone can take risk and really thrive, uh, first and foremost professionally, but hopefully in the book are a lot of tips that you can use in your personal life too. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the the sort of ideas that you've taught throughout your career that I've come across have helped all the areas in my life, not just the, the work. Um, I call it like my circle of life. You know, you have all the spirituality, your relationships, all of your things. It's to me, it's so interesting how, yeah, it is applicable to all areas of your life. And I, I, this is a really, um, pertinent topic for me in my life because, I wouldn't be here if I didn't choose what was possible, right? Especially, mm-hmm. you know, my background, right? So it's an amazing story. So having that, um, I, I almost, when people ask, like, how did you know that you even could do something else? Like, how did you even know that you could choose possibility? So my question to you is for people that are, you know, if you do think of it as a simple thing, like, oh, just make a different choice or allow your, you said something so great before, again, we started recording that my aperture opened up, you know, I'm, I'm curious if you can speak to that a little bit. Sure, sure. Well, I think it all starts with this thing that holds us all back. And I don't know if you felt this before you made your first choice. It's what I call the myth of the single choice. From afar, everything 
that people celebrate in the media, in Silicon Valley, elsewhere, quite frankly, is like these big risk takers. You know, Elon Musk wants to send somebody to Mars. Jeff Bezos is going to get on this first flight that he funded, right, to to outer space. Um, We celebrate like large risk taking in what I call the hero's journey, you know, in the media, in stories of entrepreneurship and everything. And one of the things that that does, which isn't particularly helpful or healthy, is it celebrates what I call this myth of the single choice. From afar, everybody who is successful seems to have taken one mighty risk, right? Like, wow, how did they take that big risk? How did somebody launch a company that's meant to send somebody to Mars? You know, how did somebody raise a billion dollars, right? All of these things. But in doing so, we tend to celebrate and think of them as having made a single choice. So if that choice either leads to complete glory or abject failure, you put a lot of pressure on a single choice. I think this is why many people don't act, Mm. right? We tend to think that, you know, any action is a mighty risk and it's like off a cliff or to complete glory. But what if the reality is that that's not really the way risk and choice work? What if the reality is that most of the things that we celebrate in other people's successes, careers, accomplishments, has been a series of choices? And every choice is, to your point, giving you data that moves you towards the next possibility. What if the relationship between risk and reward isn't quite so linear? And it's not about the first choice. It's about continuing to choose. That is actually what my journey has been about. Many people want to write backcast my career and be like, look at that, Sukinder. You went from accomplishment to accomplishment. And I'm like, Not really. I love this pretty cyclical journey. And quite frankly, if I told you I'm still living in and it doesn't matter if I'm running StubHub or if I'm an entrepreneur, if I told you that there are cycles to how I have made choices and had to repeatedly make choices to keep choosing to get the reward I originally imagined, or quite frankly, to get an entirely different reward. Yeah. What if I told you the power is in not the first choice or a single choice, but the ability to make multiple choices? Um, It might reframe how you think about risk entirely in making the first choice. Yeah. How, wow. The, when you put it like that, it makes so much sense to be able to look at the, um, yeah, the, the gathering of all of these choices as Mm -hmm. your anchor point, the positive feedback of the whole, as opposed to just one single thing, did it become, and you've had many, uh, very successful businesses and companies that you've headed, did it get easier for you to compile those choices or was it still as equally as uh, scary? Daunting. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's well, it's funny. It's a funny thing you say. I think two things are true. Number one, I live in a place where companies do this all the time, right? So you see, I mean, you and I both know, I always say to people like Uber, Uber started as a limousine service and ended up as a ride hailing app for everyone. Amazon started as a store where you buy, you know, videos and ended up as a movie studio, a grocery chain, a marketplace, you know, a SaaS service and more, right? So we really readily accept that in companies, companies put out something and then they get just keep pivoting their way through possibilities to get to an outsized reward, right? So we accept that. So I live in a place where that's accepted. So maybe that makes it easier. However, when it comes to our own careers, we tend to think pretty linearly because of course we've all been trained, right? To look at somebody's resume that even school unfolds linearly. You know, you do something, you get an A and then, you know, you do the next test and then you get an A. Like we're so rewarded by these linear choices. And we look at other people's career and we kind of measure ourselves against them on some hierarchy. So 
even for me, I would say, on the one hand, I live in a place where the idea of pivoting, particularly when it comes to companies, is very well accepted, even failure, right? Like that's celebrated as like as a battle scar. Mm-hmm. Yet even for me, I would say this idea of that a career could unfold nonlinearly in rather a winding way, in a way where like the size of the risk I originally took to do something and the size of the reward were not as correlated as you might expect, or what I t- was told myself in my head, if I just mm-hmm. do this mighty risk, I'm going to get this mighty reward. I think for me to learn that it took multiple cycles, like multiple cycles. So to answer your question, I don't think I really got comfortable myself with these cycles until I backcast my own career. And I'd lived enough cycles to know that indeed, if I had a failure, I would recover. And there was always another choice to be made. Yeah. But it took living through many cycles myself to feel get comfort. And even now, if you say to me, are you afraid of failure? Yeah, I am. <laughs> I mean, of course, I'm still afraid of failure. But I think the only difference is... I think I've become a far more calculated risk taker and I'm aware that there is always another choice to be made. And that gives me comfort even when I get scared. I'm like, okay, Sukender, what would you do if you, and because I've had a history of now recovering from failures and making the next choice, I always say, call that the choice after the choice. When you fail, you still have a choice to make about what to do next. And once you've lived those cycles enough, you're like, yes, indeed, another dawn will rise (laughs) if I fail again. Um, But it takes cycles. Yeah. Do you think that's something that can be taught or do you think it's something that has to be experienced? Oh my God, I sure hope it could be taught because that's the point of the book. The point of the book is to say to others, you know, hey, what if I told you that you could get started on risk taking and become a calculated risk taker and use, you know, use those calculations to take smarter risks. But again, a risk is a risk is a risk. You don't know if it's going to turn out the way you want. Um, But I can, but I think the whole point of the book is to show you a system so that maybe you don't need to agonize, you know, as you're going through it and, and maybe look looking at my story, but not just my story, a framework that contains other people's stories. I'm sure you could backcast your own Rosie um, narrative, and I bet you would find a series of choices, right, that that compounded and created compounding benefit. But if you looked at any single choice, it might have failed. But if you look at the people look at, will you look at your career the same way? And I bet when backcast, it'd be easy to only look at the peaks, but you know yourself how choices maybe non-linearly unlocked rewards that you didn't expect. No, I think it's absolutely brilliant to be able to have a barometer, to have the awareness of what is possible, Mm -hmm. because I think that gives us a little bit more respite. It gives Mm -hmm. us that ability to, yeah, take that exhale and say, okay, yeah, this is how this is normal. Like it's normal for me to feel this way. It's normal for me to take my time. I think that's the other thing I wanted to ask you, this whole idea you keep talking about it. And I've heard you talk about it in the past and other interviews that you've done, the importance of being able to give things time and space. Mm -hmm. Um, So what, yeah, what role does patience play in choosing possibility? Yeah. Yeah. I think it actually plays more than we think. And, and by the way, uh, as you can tell from the pace at which I talk, (laughs) I'm an intense person, right? So all of us who believe that the world is entirely within our control, I know you and I also share, uh, we can go to the separately, a spiritual element to us, right? Which is on the one hand, you know, we've been taught that we have agency and the book is about agency. It's about your agency to choose. Yet we can all acknowledge myself included that so many of my successes, um, and failures are actually the result of things that aren't in my control, right? That the environment in which I'm in, the people with whom I've surrounded myself. So I think that 
I think that having patience in some ways is comes hard to me. It doesn't come naturally because if you said as a person who wants to control and drive, I would always want to get to a decision as soon as possible and to force an outcome. But to some degree, you know, success comes, as you know, from choosing and actually seeing the results of your choice, right? And then not being a rash risk taker, being a calculated risk taker. If something's a big decision, I'm all for, you know, not only kind of taking time to choose, I'm all for like uncovering all the potential options and actually rating them and then choosing. So in, in some ways, this is like the duality. It's so interesting. Like we all have agency and we all, and I, and the book puts, you know, pushes you to like make a choice, but even make the minimum viable choice just to get you in motion. And then once you're in motion, yes, there's so many factors going on around you that you're going to want to respond to and enact. And that sometimes requires patience, including recognizing things that aren't in your control in terms of the environment you're in but what's in your control is your response. And so you can't force everything. You can't force success. That's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. And for somebody like me, I would say, um, I, I feel like every day I hold the duality that I have complete agency yet, yet, if I think that my success is entirely the result of my own effort and not the people around me, the situations I put myself in, the macro environment, I think that's actually a fairly naive view of the world. So it's yeah. about how you act in response to all these things. And, and sometimes you can't force it. Yeah. And we did have this chat before again. Um, how does your spiritual practice inform your career? Yeah, it's, uh, we did have this and I, I, you know, there's certain places you can go with certain people and not with others. And so knowing that you're somebody who has been on your own spiritual journey, I'll go there in this conversation. Um, I was raised by two doctors and my father, uh, my father in particular was a very big influence on my life, but both my parents, both my parents uh, loved medicine. They loved helping people. It was also their vocation and they were incredibly spiritual their entire lives. Like um, uh, my, in my family, uh, you prayed, my father meditated every day. So I was certainly raised with a religion, but also a, a set of parents who believed that how they gave back to the world and what they did for a living were in fact the same thing, right? So, so that was infused. And then, oh wait, add one more element. My dad loved being an entrepreneur. He just loved it. He loved the idea of building his own business. It was both something that was eminently practical, like nobody would call being a doctor particularly big risk, but you know, you have to pay the bills every day. You have to estimate your revenues, what have you. And it was also very creative. Like he thought about how to brand his medical practice and whether or not he could create a, you know, a clinic, an, a walk-in clinic, like 20 years before that ever materialized as a big medical trend. And so, um, or maybe 10 years. And so I think how spirituality kind of sits with me is multifold. Number one, I definitely believe that who you are at work is part of who you are and they don't need to be divorced. You don't need to look at the world and say, gosh, there's what I do, you know, eight out of 12, 24 hours of a day. And then there's how I really need to give back to the world. Like, why can't they be the same mm. thing? That was the example I saw from my parents. Why can't it be that what you do gives you joy and purpose and is also impactful on the world? So that's my worldview. And then secondarily, as I said, I saw my father be a, an entrepreneur and love entrepreneurship. I guess I just look at I look at sort of his joy of makership and again, like getting joy from work, not just you know, giving back to the world, but getting joy from work and getting to be creative at work. And I think pretty early on, you know, probably the time in my mid twenties, I understood what he said to me about like wanting to work for yourself and being an entrepreneur. And I saw it in my own work, like joy and, and, you know, and the ability to create something as being entirely possible 
in my day job. So I guess those are the ways that spirituality has sort of informed my own thinking. Um, and I hope every day that, you know, what I do and how I express it at work are and who I am are all integrated. Yeah. Why do you think it's so hard for people to be able to integrate that? Because it's very common being, yeah. oh, I have to be this person here. And then when I'm home, I can be myself. Yeah. You know, I think, well, I think it's a multifaceted question. First and foremost, I'm curious, I'm curious for what you think, but what I observe is that, um, I think for to be, for you to be your full self at work, you need to find a place that, um, that your values fit, right? The, and not just your values, that where your strengths are celebrated and where your values fit. And I think when we find those environments, we can be more of ourselves at work. Uh, and I am grateful that I found places to work for most of my career, not all, but the risks I took that were quote unquote smart career risks were putting myself um, in, in proximity to people who I not only admired, but who I felt had underlying values fit with me. And number two, putting myself in, you know, with people and in cultures where like who I innately was, was, was something that was needed and desired and, and my strengths were uh, a plus, not a negative. Uh, and what I mean by that is like places where my aggressiveness or my lean in mentality were like something that people harnessed and took advantage of, right? Versus feeling like I was at odds with the culture of my mm -hmm. workplace and what mm -hmm. kind of traits were celebrated. So I think one of the reasons it's hard for people is um, are, are some of the factors of like who we put ourselves in proximity to and what cultures we're part of that make us feel included. And then to some degree, I'd put also the onus on on any individual, sometimes we don't show up at work that way is because we're just simply afraid to show who we are. Does that make sense? And, yeah. and so it could well be that you are in an inclusive workplace and you are that is in fit with your values, but you simply have fear. And this is, you know, this is another one of the things I talk about in the book, like even the fear of speaking up for the fear of looking stupid, like that's a risk, right? I yeah. call that ego risk. And and for all we know that we, we might be celebrated for our opinions, we might be celebrated for speaking up. That's a little risk we can take and we can get the results pretty quickly. So part of it is like the environments you put yourself in and are they aligned with who you are and what you value and what you're great at? And part of it is like, can you take the little risk to express more of who you are at work and how will it be received? Yeah. I know that Kim Scott wrote your foreword. She did. I she, love Kim. She's amazing. She's, uh, she's an, uh, incredible entrepreneur as well. Mm -hmm. She is, um, she wrote the book called radical candor. Correct. And, um, yeah, so I just wanted to give that to the audience so they yeah. can look and also just work. She just wrote that recently. And I think just work. I had the privilege of pre-reading the book for Kim and giving her comments, uh, which was amazing. But her second book, Just Work, which just came out this fall, and we should give you know kudos to that as well. That book is all about how to create, how to put the onus on companies and leaders to create workplaces that are just and inclusive and allow people to show up as their full selves, right? Like, yes. because as we talked about, it's a two-sided coin. Mm -hmm. If you're a leader or a company head, your job is to create those environments. And if you're an individual, your opportunities to show up and have, and take the little risks to express yes. who you are, right? And to yeah. try and find alignment and purpose yeah. at work. Yeah, I love what you're saying, especially about just going back to what you're saying, being able to express yourself and being able to tell the truth. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's, yeah, it's the biggest uh, stifling issue that we have. And sometimes it's the one that we put on ourselves because that's yeah. just part of our conditioning. Because mm-hmm. um, so I don't know, we've all been taught that like, you have to be liked all the time. And that if you say the yes. truth, somebody won't like you. But I often, it's, it's one, it's one of the things I talk about, like, you know, we often talk about the risk in making a choice. The other risks, as you know, are all what we call execution risks. You've made a choice and now how do you optimize it to be successful? And inside of that, I think you hit on one of the key strategies, like, most of the times we're seeking success at work, we're part of a team, right? We're like, we're not alone, like we're, we're in a team. And, and I often say like, okay, one of the little risks you can take in what I call execution risk that's so worth taking is the risk to be a truth teller or a truth seeker. Like if, you know, like how do you ask questions that help reveal the truth? How do you say something that maybe nobody else is willing to say? And I think what you'll find is not only does it give you agency, it gives everybody around you agency, right? Like you can lift all boats when you, when you say like, Oh, I have a question. <laughs> I don't really understand this. Or... Yeah. Have you all, have you always been able to, to do that, to practice truth telling? Uh, I would say, I would say I have been lucky enough to be in, in most environments. I have been able to be a truth teller. And you can probably tell my, my innate wiring is I learned through asking questions. I learned through expressing opinions and seeing the response. Like sometimes people think if I express an opinion, it's it's in stone, but really I'm like, I'm somebody who like always has a thought and wants to put it out there and see what I get back to learn. So my own learning style is one that's probably pretty leans towards question answer. So yes, I've always been a truth teller, but I will say, and this is for sure true, um, in the places, the places I've stayed the longest and been the most successful, it's because I have been able to be a truth teller and felt mm-hmm. like my full self. And in the two instances in my career where I had, you know, pretty, you know, I would say visible career failure, once early in my career and my first startup in the Valley. And later when I was the CEO for the first time, I was in a, in a, the CEO role and out in six months, they have been places where I felt like actually it was very hard to be a truth teller. I didn't feel like it would be received well. My attempts weren't really welcomed. Um, and I don't just put that on me. It's just about whether I was in alignment with, you know, the company or culture, which, uh, which I was a part. And I have as much, you know, to do with that than the other person. But certainly yeah. in those, I let's put it this way, you don't last long when you don't feel like, at least for somebody like me, when you feel, don't feel like you could be a truth teller, particularly when I'm wired to learn this way. Yeah, it makes total sense. And I think that it, that's mostly the case for everybody. There's such a deep correlation between being telling the truth and self-love and being able to have that be the welcome. Yeah. Because if you, if it's not there, then it just creates so much dysfunction. Yeah, it does. Right. And sometimes I, you know, again, I've been a CEO uh, a fair amount and sometimes like one of the things I find saddest when I'm a CEO, one of the things you're always trying to do as a CEO is like very few people want to tell you the truth. They think there's fear in telling you the truth. Does that make sense? And I'm always like, yeah. no, no, like I want you to constructively question and be and feel safe to say something that you don't understand or you don't think is right. So it's funny because as CEOs, we like what we often want from our workplaces is people to just tell us the truth and be okay and feel like there's no risk in doing that. Yet, ironically, when you are the leader of an organization, people might fear the most telling you the truth because they think it makes you look bad or it makes them look bad. Or, and I'm like, no, no, mostly it's like, we're all going to learn faster, you know, if people feel comfortable and safe telling the truth. This episode is brought to you by Cerebral. Did you know that last year, rates of anxiety and depression have doubled in the U.S.? These days, it can take weeks to get a traditional therapy appointment. 
Cerebral is an online mental health service that offers prescription medication, counseling, and therapy for anxiety, depression, ADHD, insomnia, and more. I was so grateful to have been introduced to Cerebral while I was going through COVID. I needed to talk to somebody. I was suffering from a very terrible bout of anxiety, and the process was so entirely easy for me, and the counselor was so kind and loving and completely empathetic to what I was going through. They do offer prescription medication online through a licensed provider, and they ship medications directly to your door. They have unlimited messaging with your care team, and with Cerebral mobile app, it's like having your own personal care team wherever you are. You can connect to them straight through the app, schedule sessions, and find a place in your home where you're comfortable taking the conversation. Cerebral has affordable treatments that are one-third of the price of traditional therapy. Treatment options are available with or without insurance. Cerebral is in-network for several insurers, and they're working every day to grow their partnerships. And for a limited time, for all of our listeners, you can receive 65% off of your first month of medication management and care counseling at getcerebral.com forward slash loved. Go to getcerebral.com forward slash loved to get 65% off of your first month. That's a total of $30 to get started. Join Cerebral today on their mission to make quality mental health care accessible and affordable for all. I think, I I don't want to pivot too far, but I'm just in my mind thinking of all the people that are in that place right now or a lot of people lost their jobs because of Mm -hmm. the pandemic and they're in a place where maybe they're more open to Mm -hmm. hearing, you know, these types of, um, ways that they can change mm-hmm. the way they do things, um, maybe in a new job or a new career, maybe they decide to launch their own business. Um, what do you think that they need to hear the most right now when it comes to just them being able to feel like they can do something? Well, it's, uh, I, uh, first of all, I think you're right that the pandemic has taught all of us, whether you're in a certain, in a company, whether you're a leader, whether you're considering a new career choice, I think everybody has just learned a lot about their own flexibility and resiliency Mm. in ways they never thought possible, which is why ironically, post a pandemic, right? What, what I call a coconut event, uh, well, researchers call it a coconut event. And this thing that you never expect, like a coconut dropping out of a tree and like killing you, that is actually literally the definition of a coconut event, according to researchers. Um, But like when you have this coconut event, you would think it would make you more adverse to change. But weirdly, it teaches us all something right about what about our ability to blend, bend and flex and still be, you know, and recover whatever recovery Mm -hmm. means. I recognize recovery can be hard or easy, depending on what sector you're in right now, but but that you can recover. So what do I think people need to hear right now? Well, first of all, I think the first thing people need to hear is whether, you know, whether you seek out change or change seeks you out you know, your opportunity, right, is to embrace change and become calculated and think of it as a muscle and a risk you can, a, a muscle you can exercise. And like, what better way to, to exercise it than when you actually feel safe? <laughs> so weirdly, yeah. like it's sometimes when we feel our safest that we could, we're capable of, you know, making all these little choices to try new things, yet we don't. And then some gigantic risk, you know, befalls us. And all of a sudden we learn our agency in the most dire of circumstances. So what I want to remind people of is in this time, 
what you just learned about yourself is that you can be a risk taker as defined by, you know, embrace a change and, you know, figure out how to make the most of it, whether it's a change for the positive or the negative from which you recover. These are all like signals to you that you are far more capable of risk taking and risk taking is not just for the risky. Um, so what would I say to people like you've learned something pretty amazing about yourself and use the opportunity to think about what change you might want to make. And if a big change seems daunting, make a little one, what I call the minimum viable choice, just the littlest change that could get you into action towards a new goal. And then you can be, you can take comfort in the fact that you're not one choice away from success. Success is often many unfolding choices. So all you, and they're imperfect. So all you really need to do is make the first one and you're going to start getting the results and be far more empowered than making no change at all. Looking back at your extremely successful career, what was the biggest chance that you took mm -hmm. that resulted in something bigger than you would have ever imagined? Sure. Well, I think this comes, this speaks to the, the one I'll tell you will surprise you. And I think it will lead to sort of the whole thesis of like risk and reward being completely nonlinear. Uh, so when I was at Google, I was at Google from 2003 to 2009, and I arrived at the company when it was like literally about 1,000 people, and I left when it was 26,000, and it's actually almost 40,000 with contractors, and of course, Google's now like triple or quadruple that size, but I was there for one of the company's biggest periods of ascent, and as a result, I also ascended, so um, I was the president of our international operations and also got to be the first head of local and maps and built that service uh, with a group of amazing engineers and product leaders, and so... So I had this amazing ascent. And by the time I was leaving Google, I was pregnant with my third child. I was 39 years old. And unlike my peers, which were pretty impressive peers, I wanted to prove that, you know, I could be successful on my own platform, that I could go run something and be a CEO. And it wasn't just Google that made me successful. Mm -hmm. And so I did all of my diligence and studying. And I ended up at a company called Polyvore, which was an early, you know, online uh, lifestyle kind of pinboarding platform before Pinterest, you could, you know, pin items, you probably know Polyvore, mm -hmm. you know, fashion, beauty items, lifestyle items, and they were all shoppable. And I thought, wow, well, e-commerce is about to break open in this new category of lifestyle, e-commerce, fashion, beauty apparel. I'm like, that's a pretty good sector to be in. Oh, by the way, this technology is amazing. And I, you know, this company has quoted me for years. And so I made a very deliberate decision. I studied a bunch of e-commerce companies. I took time off. By the way, I left Google when I was pregnant with my third child in order to take nine months and study the whole kind of ecosystem. And finally, I chose to go to Polyvore. And within six months, and it was my first CEO job, and I'd taken this big risk, and I hadn't gone to a safe job. I'd gone from running, you know, a company of two, a division of two billion plus in revenue and 2,000 people to a 10-person startup. And guess what? Six months later, I was out. I mean, the founder wanted to run the company. He didn't want me to run it anymore. And he and I had different values, and the board had to choose, and the board chose him. And it was heartbreaking. So that was an incredible failure. But I will say to people, like, you think I made one choice, but I made three choices. I made the choice to be a CEO, right, and leave Google. So it's actually two choices. I made the choice to enter the e-commerce industry. And then I made a choice at this specific company. So that looks like a pretty epic fail. But now let's fast forward 10 years later. You know, it's only because I made that choice that I learned e-commerce as a business at a time when it was exploding. Um, by the way, that allowed me to become not just a board member at J. Crew, where I was early on. I became a board member at TripAdvisor. I became a board member at Urban Outfitters. I became the first investor in Stitch Fix. 
because I learned e-commerce. I learned lifestyle e-commerce and that skill set. And then I learned to be a CEO. And all three of those skill sets were incredibly valued, right? So even though I failed at my first run in that specific job, that led to all my opportunities to invest in e-commerce, become a board member at e-commerce companies, and to learn what e-commerce real like good e-commerce really looks like. What are the metrics of success or failure? I went on a went on to start a video commerce company called Joyous. And then, you know, in addition to becoming a board member and investor, I ended up being the CEO of StepHub, which was a multi-billion dollar e-commerce company. None of that would have happened if I hadn't gone to Polyvore, right? So I made multiple choices. And one of the three choices was unsuccessful. I would argue that like one of the four choices, I would say the other three worked out pretty darn well. (laughs) But as measured over the course of 10 years and multiple more choices, um, right. So it wasn't just the first choice. Yeah. It was about all the choices and yes. the different time frames. Yeah. And again, you're going back to the whole idea of being able to accumulate all of them over Those the course choices. of time. Yeah. That's right. And respond to the differing results. Right. Right. So if you think if I overweighted only polyvore at any single point in time at an early point in time, that would look like an epic fail. One choice, fail. Multiple choices, success uh, and some compounding success. Um, so so I think that there is a rhythm to how we make yeah. choices and, and unlock the results. It's just not the one we're conditioned to expect. Yeah. Well, and I think the other side to that coin is somebody can, instead of looking at all of the positive that came from it, just focus on the failure and maybe yeah. be crippled Paralyzed. by Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, this, is the, this is the risk. If you think that risk reward is about acting once, if it fails, you're devastated, right? And you think it's all you and you might never choose again. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, imagine if you never choose again. Imagine if you take the first data point and you stop at that data point, like, um, and you let it cripple you. Uh, uh, that's not a very powerful place to be. And, and so I guess I believe that people who choose frequently may encounter more failure. They're likely to accumulate more success as well, as long as you keep willing to sort of take the result, aim to have more impact, take the result, aim to have more impact, right? If you're willing to be in that loop, you will get the compounding benefits, but it just may not unfold in a single choice. Yeah. I'm going to actually pivot to another. I'm trying to cover all of my personal questions. (laughs) Next question. Um, Because I I really am taking it all in and I totally agree. And I I think it's such a, a great way to Uh, see the world as a way to co-create with the universe as opposed to feel like life is happening to you. Yeah. Um, I just want to pivot to um, just being a person in the workplace, being able to take the, make these decisions and take these risks Mm -hmm. Um, as women, you Mm -hmm. know, it's, it's kind of a known thing that for women, it is a lot more difficult to do Mm -hmm. because we are also, you know, you're a mom you are, you have a a relationship. (laughs) There's other things that come into the mix. So how have you seen this change over the course of your career? Mm -hmm. And how are you able to balance it in your life? Uh, Yeah, both are great questions. Well, first of all, maybe how, how have I tackled it? And then what do I observe? First of all, um, there's the ways I tackled it. And then there's what I observe now. 
uh, I think the way I tackled it, and you know, this whole idea that you're going to be perfectly balanced in a given day, weirdly, the only time I've ever even come close is with COVID because I no longer have a commute. And so I actually could theoretically work out in the morning and feed my kids breakfast because, you know, I don't even, I in COVID, I didn't even have to drive them to school. Like, you know, so maybe I got back an hour at each end of the day. So I actually could cook dinner at five o'clock, but okay. But, but for the COVID an anomaly, there has been no like daily balance, if that makes sense. There's no day I wake up and I perfectly look perfectly quaffed, feed my children a perfectly healthy, balanced meal, work out, get to work on time and incredibly productive, get home, feed the children on time, get all my work done, watch a show with my husband, go to bed like at 10 o'clock, get eight night, eight hours of sleep. Like that, that, that doesn't happen. That historically has not happened to me. As I said, COVID is, is weirdly um, more yeah. balanced for a lot of us, but um but the way I balanced it historically over a lifetime is I negotiated. I negotiated at work and at home. And people like to think that their marriage isn't a negotiation. It is. I was always conducting and with very supportive counterparts, my husband and my bosses, you know, bilateral negotiations in order to make it work. And um, and a good example of that, I mean, and I, I believe me when I say this, it sounds privileged. So I'm just going to give you the example and acknowledge that it does as opposed to trying to imagine that it doesn't. But when I was at Google, um, I was offered the opportunity to run international. I was running local and maps. Google, uh, Larry and Sergey wanted to accelerate Google's international revenues. My boss asked me to do it. It was a very small business and it was covering all the emerging markets of the world. Like literally my group would be called rest of world. Like that went from Brazil to China. I mean, imagine that, that geography. And I really wanted to do the job. Right. But my, um, but I was, uh, I was pregnant <laughs> with my, uh, with my daughter and I thought, how am I going to do this job and make it work? And so I went to work and at home and I literally said to Google, like, I really want to keep this job. And I've been in it a year. Actually, I take it back. I've been in it several months, but I want to stay in this job. And I said, the only way I know how to make it work is I want my nanny and my daughter to be able to travel with me. And I knew that Google was printing money and I knew that they valued me in that job. And I didn't ask with entitlement, but I did ask with you know, some level of like, look, I think that the opportunity cost of losing me in this job is high for you, but I also appreciate this is a ridiculous ask, you know, by any measure, except for when weighted financially against the cost of losing me and having started over right. with another leader. And Google said yes. And for two and a half years, they flew my daughter and my nanny around the world with me to make, to allow me to stay in that job. Just think about that for a moment. That's crazy. Wow. And then at home, I said to my husband, like, okay, like I want to take my daughter nanny around the world. And I like at certain times of the, like, I'm not going to be gone more than two or two and a half weeks at a time. There was a point at which I had to move to China. I convinced my husband to bring our other son, my stepson, Ryan to China with him. I was like, I'm going to be there for three months. I need you guys to come for three weeks. And we're all going to like live in Hong Kong together and take of it as an adventure. And so like that was the negotiation in order to make that job work. So it's an extreme example. So what do I think it takes for everyone? I would say a couple of things. I said, number, number one, you do have to treat your personal and professional lives and your spouses and your people at work, like not in an entitled way, but in a way where you're trying to balance everybody's needs and understanding at some point someone's going to get sacrificed. But you have to be in a pretty active conversation, like hiding it is not going to do you any good, not your marriage, not your relationship, not work. If you try and hide what's going on at home at work, when what you maybe need is flexibility, 
you, you have to have the courage to ask for it, not as an asshole, yes. but you know, and I think COVID, by the way, this is the blessing of COVID. Everybody saw everybody else's personal lives in full glory. We now understand that even our bosses have children they're trying to manage and a dog that walks into the room and, you know, like they need to go to the bathroom. Like everybody got a little humanized in COVID, yeah. right? And I hope what comes out of COVID, and I think it already is, is more flexible work environments in which we understand the wholeness of what people are trying to manage and accomplish. Um, caregiving, older parents, you know, children, what have you, and we can find a way to create more flexible work environments. But I would say before COVID, people felt a lot of fear to bring these things up, right? And the only way I knew how to make it work was to put it on the table. Mm. Uh, that doesn't mean, by the way, everybody got what they wanted. My husband didn't get what he wanted. I didn't always get what I wanted. Work didn't always, but, but I had to put it on the table and ask for what I needed to make it work. Yeah. And again, I fully realize I did that from a position of privilege. But what I always say to people is, look, if you do great work for great people in environments that share your values, you should feel the ability, you know, to bring yourself to work, your full self to work and to try and have an honest conversation about what you do, what you need to do to make it work. Yeah. Oh, that's so it's so inspiring, too, because even in saying that, I know a lot of people, even some students that I've worked with that women specifically that could potentially be in that same position or they've been faced with situations where they do have to make a sacrifice but uh what is it like hindsight they feel that they should have asked Asked. for something else yes you know it comes back to that point to like ability to be a truth teller yes and constructively I'm not saying to go in and demand but I think if you don't ask you don't know and sometimes what's really and maybe it's not possible but maybe it is right yeah um so I think it's about taking that little risk to ask for what you need and see what happens yeah with a solution in mind (laughs) right exactly I mean my my dad always says baby don't cry baby don't get fed so I'm like okay like that's (laughs) that's that's a good it's kind of messed up, but it's, it's yeah, a really great but it's thing. True. Yeah, I know. I know. I think I know that asking takes courage. Um, but as I said, it's one of those little risks worth taking. Like, yeah. What's the worst that can happen, right? You're in the status quo. Like it's no worse. Yeah. And, and I, and what you're saying about balance is it's, it applies across the board to any, any and all the people that I know that are trying to balance being, an entrepreneur being a, having a career and having a family, there's this, you know, I, I used yeah. to have this belief that was implanted, not by me, mm-hmm. but by, um, uh, somebody I used to work with that mm-hmm. said to me, because I was always very, um, ambitious, you know, mm-hmm. I always wanted yeah. to just try and conquer the the world I wanted to be my dreams were always really big and even though maybe I didn't always get to my goals I always enjoyed the mm-hmm. process of opening up to that possibility mm-hmm. and I remember he told me one day um you know with the way that you want to live your life there's no way that you can be successful and have a family and, you know, so in my mind, I always had that belief like, oh, I either have to choose my choose, career yeah. or choose, right. Yeah, or choose a family. Yeah. And by the way, you, you probably know this. It's never perfect. Right. I always say somebody is getting the short end of the stick. Like that is true. There have been times that my children have had the complete short end of the stick on my career. And, and, and also given who I am and how I'm wired, like, you know, a lot of times caused by me, not by anyone else, like, you know, my own desires, 
Um, but I do think it's possible over the course of our lifetimes to negotiate and navigate for what we want. If you were willing to, again, look at a longer cycle of views, right? It's the same thing. You can't think of it at a single choice. At any single point of time, something might be out of balance. But maybe over the course of time, you can, you know, segment your time and make mm. choices where looking back on your life, you felt like, you know, somebody at some point didn't get this short end of the stick. <laughs> I mean, I was, I, I'm hopeful that my children at some point will realize they were cycles that I was at work and cycles where I was more available. And on the whole, I hope. Yeah. That, I well, was hopefully good they, as a mom. Yeah. And they see the accumulation of it all. Yeah. We hope, right. That's the thing. Yeah. Like when measured in any single moment, I think it's very hard to say, you know, are you in balance? Like that's, that's a, that's a ridiculously high bar to be in that level of balance each and every day. And, you know, not short tricked at someone. I don't think, I think that's a, I think that's a impossibly high standard. Yeah. Well, I want to, continue this conversation but I've already even prior to us recording I've already taken way too much of your time and I just want to um there's one more question I want to ask you but I just want to take a quick moment to thank you and uh express my gratitude because this has been so enlightening for me and as you know I've been following you for a long time and so it's it's such a honor and a privilege to have you on the show and to be a part of this community and this platform and and thank you for all the work that you've done and the work that you continue to do it really does impact so many people so thank you well thanks so much for having me it's been a really fun conversation and i've loved all the i've loved all the lanes we've gone down <laughs> i, I mean that's I a try, lot of fun i try to go through all see i'm trying to do all all of the things <laughs> so for the people that are listening uh to the show where can they go for more information where can they um reach out or where can they learn more Sure. So a couple of things. So you can always go to the book website, www.choosepossibility.com. And of course, you're welcome to order the book. I would love it if you did. You can order it on, you know, at any major book publisher or off the site. Uh, there's also a fun risk quiz you can take. I would say to people, if you want to just, you know, and I, it's not done by a scientist, it's done by me and my team, but um, it's just a simple kind of probably 60 second quiz that helps you think about your natural risk-taking style, you know, so that when you read the book or otherwise think about the things we've talked about today, you can think like, where am I coming from as I think about how to make more choices? Um, and then I'm, you know, you can always find me on Twitter and LinkedIn. LinkedIn is definitely where I hang out more these days because it's a really fun place to engage with people, you know, as they develop their careers and, um, and seek to thrive. Cool. So we will put all of those links in the show notes. Uh, so wherever you get your podcast, if you click the info button, all of those links will be there as well as the show notes and everything that was discussed here today. So the final question pertains to this podcast and why I created it, um, which we talked about a little bit, mm-hmm. it, I created this place for people to come to, excuse me, to get inspired, to feel supported. And the whole idea is that we are radically loved by God, source, higher power, whatever it is that you believe that the universe works for us and not against us. Mm-hmm. And so the final question to you is how do you feel radically loved? Oh my goodness. I feel radically loved in, I I think, more ways to count. I I look back on my life and I look back on my parents, my children, my husband, and honestly, the incredible people I've gotten to work with in my career. Like, and most of my joy comes from having been surrounded by people who appreciated and supported who I was. And I will say who made possibility possible, whether it was my family or whether it was, you know, the people I worked with who accepted my strengths and my weaknesses and how I showed up every day at work. Uh, 
And yeah, that's how I feel radically loved. I love that. Thank you so much, Sukinder. You've been so amazing. I'm so grateful. And thank you everybody for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, as usual, please share it with a friend. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And we will be back next week. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I am so excited to continue to do this. Please share this with your friends. Email us. Message us on Instagram at Rosie Acosta or on Twitter at Rosie Acosta. Subscribe on iTunes. Write a review. We love doing this. So please help us continue to keep this podcast going. Thanks for listening.